All right, so we've been looking at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so this morning we looked at some really, how many of you enjoyed that this morning? Wasn't that just some interesting stuff? And uh, I want to give you some of the background of that that I just didn't have time to get to, to maybe fill in some questions that you might have and to help you to have some answers. So we're looking at the power of prophecy, and I want us to look at this concept of the week of years. So I I just jumped right to it that those 69 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 are weeks of years and that the Bible uses the word week to describe years. Let me give you an example of that that I think is enough. Go to Genesis 29. Genesis 29 and verse 27. Now, Jacob and Laban, they basically made it a habit of ripping each other off. It's such an... Boy, did did two people ever deserve each other more than Jacob and Laban? And so... I think the story of of Rachel and Leah is hilarious because it didn't happen to me. And Leah was a tender-eyed woman, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if her eyes went two different directions or what was going on, but Jacob was not interested in Leah, and Laban uh, tricked him. So if you go to Genesis chapter 29... And look at verse 24. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zilpah, his hand, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that thou, this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, it must not be done so or be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. You see that? Fulfill her week. Now, if he just had to be married to her for a week, maybe that wouldn't have been too bad. But let's read on. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me, yet seven other, what does it say? Years, verse 30. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. Fulfill her week, and that was a week of years, seven years. Do you all see that? So this this happens several times in Scripture, and so that's how we're justified in using, in Daniel chapter 9, that as weeks of years. So I think that's an interesting little nugget there. Now this, what I'm about to show you, doesn't have anything to do with the Bible other than explaining the whole 360-day calendar that the Jews used. And so this is a little bit of a diversion, but it's kind of fun. So all calendars appear to have changed in 701 B.C. All calendars. um, Harry, do you remember that? (laughs) Oh, that's... A little bit, just a little bit. So all calendars appear to have changed in 701 B.C. So here, just some little, a little background. So Numa Pompilus, the second king of Rome, reorganized the original calendar of 360 days per year, 
by adding five days per year, all the way back in 701 B.C. Then, King Hezekiah, Numa's contemporary, reorganized his Jewish calendar by adding a month each Jewish leap year on a cycle of seven every 19 years. Okay, so he added a month each Jewish leap year, and it's actually adding a day. That's not a month. It's a day every seven for 19 years. So it's pretty interesting the way all of this worked. All early calendars appear to be based on a 360-day calendar. All of these nations, pretty interesting. The Assyrians, Chaldeans, Egyptians, Hebrews, Persians, Greeks, Phoenicians, Chinese, Mayans, Hindus, Carthaginians, Etruscans, and Teutons all had calendars based on a 360-day year, and they were typically 12, 30-day months. Now, what's interesting is many of those nations didn't have any, any interactions with each other at all. So how is it that they could all have the same calendar, the same amount of time on their calendar? So there's a supposition as to how that happened, and it's pretty interesting. In ancient Chaldea, the calendar was based on a 360-day year. This is some fun trivia for you. It is from this Babylonian tradition that we have 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes to an hour, 60 seconds in each minute, etc. If you've ever wondered where that came from, that all goes back to the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. So as they come out of the captivity, all of this information comes with them. Pretty interesting. So all calendars change in 701 B.C., but why did they change? This is fun. The Roman year began with March, and the month is named after Mars, the Roman god. They later reorganized their calendar in 364 B.C. to begin on January 1st. So this this whole idea of Mars and uh, its relation to the earth and to the calendar, it's it's a, a pretty fun study. It, it, now, it, I know, you have to be really bored to think, that how Mars affected the calendars is interesting, but it's just really interesting to me. So how did this happen? Most of the early cultures organized their calendars around either March or October. Either March or October. Why? Well, because that is when Mars was the closest to the earth. That interesting? And all of the early civilizations were terrified by the planet Mars. And it's interesting that the term martial arts, that's Latin for war of Mars, the war of Mars. And that's the Roman god. Mars was the Roman god of war. And so when when Mars came and you could see Mars and they, they were very... You understand that in those days, what else did you have to do? Look up. And they were very familiar with the movement of the planets and all of those things, but they didn't have telescopes. So it's really interesting. I've got some fun information about that. So, the, the, so this was written in, I think, 2003 or 2005. The recent space age discovery of orbital resonance, the tendency of orbits to synchronize on a multiple of one another, has led to a fascinating conjecture that the, orb, that the orbits of the Earth, 
and the planet Mars were once on resonant orbits of 360 days and 720 days, respectively. All right? So the, the orbits were a little different than they are now. A computer analysis has suggested that this could yield orbital interactions that would include a near pass-by on a multiple of 54 years, and this would occur on either March 25th or October 25th. Such near pass-bys would transfer energy, altering the orbits of each. So let me translate that into less geek speech. So every 54 years, either in March or October, the Earth and Mars would interact with each other. And when they did, it would change the orbit of each of those planets. And depending on the position of either planet, when they interacted with each other, one would be the winner and one would be the loser. And so when you, when you look at mythology and you look at history and how Mars, the red planet, was always looked at with fear, it was for good reasons. In near proximity, such bypasses would be accompanied by meteors, severe land tides, earthquakes, etc., and this would help explain why all the ancient cultures were so terrified by the planet Mars and why calendars tended to reflect either March or October. A series of such passbys could also explain a number of the catastrophes of ancient history, including the famous Long Day of Joshua and several other biblical episodes. Isn't that interesting? So it's all our interacting with the planet Mars. I just think that that's so fun. And when you think of all, the, all of the stories about Mars and taking a trip to Mars, and it, what's interesting is the difference in distance. So like in 1995, we were something like 80 million miles from Mars. In 2003, we were 34 million miles from Mars because of the way that the planets interact. But before 701 B.C., apparently those bypasses were a lot closer and just messed with everything in the planet. I think that that's pretty fun, pretty cool stuff. Stability appears to have been attained during the last near pass-by in 701 B.C. And what was the year again when they redid the calendars? 701 B.C., and that's the last near pass-by that's recorded of Mars, resulting in the Earth and Mars's present orbits of 365 and a quarter days, and 687 days, respectively. So it's pretty interesting. Now, let me tell you something that's fun, and I meant to bring the book. I had it out on my shelf. There is a famous historian, and there, he, he chronicled the travels of this man named Gulliver. Not Gilligan, that's different. Jonathan Swift, he wrote, these travels of Gulliver in 1726. Think about that. That was before anyone knew anything about Mars having two moons. And in it, in his book, in Gulliver's Travels, in the third book, so the third book is the one that's in between the, 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 the tiny people and the giants, okay? Like between Wade and Stacy. It's in, in between. 
And in that, the Laputans, not the Lilliputians, the Laputans had telescopes that allowed them to see and they saw Mars and Mars had two very small moons. And it talks about the circulation of those moons and what that did to the planet. How in the world did... Now, it's funny, people kind of look down on what he said because he didn't have their rotations precise. So it's not that great of a prediction. He knew that they had two... So like one of the moons uh, for Mars is only eight miles wide. It's like one-tenth the size of our moon. And so Jonathan Swift knew that there were two moons to Mars. Why? Because he was uh, an expert in mythology and he had read myths. And apparently at some point in the past, it, the two planets had come close enough to where you could actually see with the naked eye the two moons of Mars. How about that? So I think that that is so fun. So when you guys get home, get your Gulliver's Travels out and look at the third book and you'll start reading about those two moons that probably had something to do with the change in the calendars and have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. Okay? Now, all right, so let's, let's try and do some Bible now and see what we can, what we can come up with. Um, let's see. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Was that a little fun? Just a little diversion? I enjoy that kind of stuff. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. You know what would be fun? Before we do Daniel 9, 26. How much time do I have? Okay. Look at Revelation chapter 15. Uh, uh, no, Revelation chapter uh, 6. All right, look at verse uh, 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. How about that? Then look at what it says in verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and every island, every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Isn't that an interesting thing? So that's something similar to what would happen when Mars would come too close to the earth, and everything was moved. And when we had the, um, the earthquake in Japan a few years ago, the island was moved several feet. The island of Japan was moved several feet. It's an interesting thing to think that, a, that an island that large could be moved, and it was. Now, that Democratic congresswoman, remember, that her congressman that was afraid that if we put too much military material on this island in the ocean, it might capsize. Look it up. Maybe the dumbest man in the history of the world in his United States congressman. He was worried that the island was going to capsize, okay? Um, young people, islands are actually on the ground, just so you know. So, the Bible says that these will be moved, these islands and things will be moved out of place. Can you imagine what happens to the environment 
when all of those bodies move. And that affects time and it affects the clock. Look at Revelation chapter 8. Verse 10, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many died, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten. And the third part of the moon and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Do you see that? So a third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars are stricken by God. And so the sun shines thirty, or a, a third less, and the, the night is a third shorter. Go to Matthew chapter 24. We looked at this passage this morning. So we see the change in the calendar, 360 to 365 days. Probably in connection with our, the Earth's interaction with Mars. But now what God does is God strikes the Earth. And look at what it says. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days, now never forget those days, when you see those days, look for the tribulation. And we know that this is the tribulation because it says that it's great tribulation. And except those days should be, what's that word? There should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now, the elect is either Jesus or Israel. In this context, it's for Israel's sake. Because if the tribulation was allowed to go its entire seven years, no one would live. But for Israel's sake, for the elect's sake, it's still seven years. Because the Bible tells us the exact number of days that it's going to be. So what does God do? How does God intervene to save his people? By actually shortening the days and making the sun and the moon and the planets smaller. It's an amazing thing that God does and he keeps it all in balance. Who is it that upholds all things with the word of his power? It's Jesus Christ. And so when you start to see these weather things and people are worried about global warming, um, look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
So if someone asks you, do you believe in global warming? Say yes. It just happens really fast. It's very interesting. People have this weird idea that if you use hairspray, you're going to raise the sea levels and all of these things are going to happen. No, all of that stuff's going to happen by God in a seven-year period of time. And what God said is you're going to have wars and rumors of wars. You're going to have earthquakes. You're going to have pestilence. All of those things are going to happen in the planets. That's going to happen on planet Earth. We're going to have that. But that's not the end. The end is when God does this. Amen? That means that we're going to have to have green grass for him to burn up. That means there have to be fish in the sea and crops in the fields and beasts on the earth. All of those things have to be in existence in order for God's prophecy to be able to come true. And I believe God. Amen? So when we look at those things, we need to understand we have to take every word of God seriously. God means what he says about every one of those things. No, go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and look at verse 26. Uh, Let's read 25 for the context. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So we know what those 69 weeks are. That is the time period from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild for Nehemiah to be able to rebuild Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, until Jesus Christ's triumphal entry. So we, we have the exact dates for that. So we know what verse 25 is about, verse 26. And after threescore and two weeks. Now, verse 26, and I have it on the screen for you, is the interval between the 69th and the 70th week of years. And let me clear up a little question that sometimes people have, or that people sometimes have. Verse 26, and after threescore and two weeks... Well, I thought it was after the 69 weeks. Well, that's where you have to go to the verse before. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So you have the seven weeks and then the threescore and two weeks. So the after the threescore and two weeks implies the after the seven weeks. Are y'all following me on that? See what's going on in that verse? Okay. So after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So did Jesus was Jesus crucified before or after the triumphal entry? So that 69 weeks ended. It stopped. That was the terminus of that, of that mathematical calculation was when Jesus Christ performed his triumphal entry. After that, he was crucified. So Jesus Christ was crucified in that intervening time. And it's such an interesting thing. Keep your place in Daniel 26 and go with me to Luke. Chapter 22, 
verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So does he say the new covenant or the new Testament? The New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9. All right, look at verse 11. But Christ, Hebrews 9 and verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, it's interesting. Keep your place there in Hebrews nine twelve, and go back to Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in righteousness. Do you see all of that? That hasn't happened yet. But when you look at back to Hebrews 9 and verse 12, having obtained the end of the verse eternal redemption for us. So he has accomplished it. So now look at verse 14. Now, he has accomplished this for the church in that intervening period. Israel has not yet been redeemed. Are you all with me on that? All right. So we're in that intervening period of verse 26. And we're defining it from the scriptures. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the what? Is it the New Testament or the New Covenant? The New Testament. He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the what? The First Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 26. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now the Messiah was cut off. He was killed but he didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins. Isn't that a blessing? And what did that death do? That death introduced the New Testament. So that chapter 9 of Hebrews and ver of uh, Daniel in verse 26, that is that intervening period that we call the church age. That takes place in verse 26. So what happens after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now look at this. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince that shall come. Now, go back up to verse 25, middle of the verse. 
and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Do you see the capital P there? That's Jesus Christ coming at his triumphal entry. Something else is happening here in verse 26. That happens, listen, before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. What happens? And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So who was it in AD 70 that destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Who was it? Titus. What nation was he from? Rome. So, for, so what the Bible is saying is this prince, this Antichrist, is going to have to come back from that people, from some kind, either the Roman religious system or a revived Roman political system. That's exactly what's being spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 that is going to take place in that interval, in that interval between his triumphal entry and his return. Now, really important. It doesn't say that the prince is going to come during that time. It says that the people of the prince that's going to come will destroy the temple and the sanctuary. Or, or how does it say it? Uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what, what we know from that is Rome, is the, the, that's the nation, those are the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And that means that the prince that shall come, that is yet to come, the Antichrist, he's going to have something to do with either that religious system or the revived Roman Empire. And when does that take place? Let's keep reading. And the end, middle of verse 26, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So Israel was destroyed and it was desolate. Mark Twain took a trip to uh, Israel. And man, he hated it. It was horrible. It was just a mound of rubble. And towards the end of the 1800s, uh, the, this, this term Zionism was revived and people started becoming interested in going back to the Holy Land. And uh, Horatio P. Spafford, who wrote it as well with my soul, was one of those pilgrims. He ended up building a house, and it's a hotel there now. I've eaten at that hotel where Spafford, as a Zionist at the end of the 1800s, was some of the people heading back to the Holy Land looking for the return of Christ. Well, we know that World War I happens, and World War II happens, and all of a sudden now, in, in the early 1900s, you have the Balfour Declaration, the Balfour Declaration allows for the people to go back to Israel, but it wasn't until 1948 that they became a state. All of that happens, and desolations are determined until that point. And man, if you go to the Holy Land, you talk about desolations. It is amazing. When you go up on the Temple Mount, remember the Palestinian Authority controls the Temple Mount. They have mounds of garbage on the Temple Mount right where the Temple is supposed to be. I have pictures of it. I'm talking trash bags and rolled up carpets and junk and garbage. That's, that's desolations, people. That's what it is. That's what the Palestinian Authority is doing to the Temple Mount. And, of course, you know that Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. It's against the law. They're not allowed to do it. All right? So now, it says at the end of verse 26, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, verse 27. 
And he shall confirm the covenant with many. Who? This prince that shall come. For how long? How, how long is it? One week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So what do we know? We know the temple has to be rebuilt and the sacrificial system has to begin again. And so when you go to Israel, you can go to the Temple Institute and you can see the temple implements that they have built, that they've created according to biblical instructions. And they are ready for that temple to be built in a moment. As soon as they are able to do it, they will build that temple. The sacrifices will begin again. And Jesus said what's going to happen is called the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist, he, makes, uh, he, he declares himself to be God in the holiest of all in the newly constructed temple after three and a half years. So what we have in verse 27, we have the 70th week. Verse 26 is the interval between the 69th week, which was the triumphal entry, and the 70th week which begins with the rapture of the church and ends with Jesus Christ returning to the earth to establish his kingdom forever. That's the scope of what's being discussed here. So Daniel 9.26 is the interval between the 69th and 70th weeks of years. And Daniel 9.27 is the 70th week of years. Now, remember that Daniel 9.24 is a prophecy for Israel, not the church. And I had intended to show you how in the church age all of these have been fulfilled, but I'm not going to take the time to do that tonight. I'll do that for you another time. Um, but I want you to see this. I mentioned to you this morning that Daniel's 70 weeks, that the chart that I gave you, is, was really a chart of Daniel's 69 weeks. So what I want you to see here in, in more of a graphic form is you have the, the decree of Artaxerxes on March 14th, 445 B.C. That's the command to rebuild Jerusalem. That begins, that starts the stopwatch for the 69 weeks. When Jesus Christ rides on the, the colt of an ass on, the, the, on April 6th, 32 A.D. in his triumphal entry, that terminates those 69 weeks. So you would think that the 70th week would follow the 69th week. That's not the way that the Bible works. So what I have here is you'll see these white lines in the interval of the church age. How long is that? Well, at this point, just under 2,000 years. That much I know. Beyond that, we don't know. It could end today. What is the trigger for ending it? Look at Romans chapter 11. And <clears throat> verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What is the thing, what is it that's going to trigger the beginning of the 70th week? What is the event? 
It's interesting. We were talking in the car on the way home. The precision, the, the, the date, you know, Jesus knew exactly the right date to send the guys for the donkey. Right? He knew the exact date. He knew his hour. He knew when it was going to happen. And we were talking, and Laura was talking about how that God has a specific day. Now, you know, the Bible says that God hasn't revealed that to the Son. Now, how is it that the Son doesn't know something that the Father does? I would, I would assume he chooses not to know it because he is as omniscient as the Father, and they are one. Are you with me? You follow me? And some of those things, I think, are anthropomorphisms. They're, they're uh, turns of speech to help us somehow try to identify with what's happening in the text. We can't understand the mind of God. Are you all with me on that? But I don't know that there is an actual day. No, I think that God knows that day. But I don't think there are a number of days predicted. I think it's a number of people. Because what the text says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So that interval, that interval period, it's based on evangelism. And the Bible says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I know that we sometimes think that that's hyperbole. You know, that's poetic language. You know, you really want to try and reach as many people as you can. And you really do want to try and reach as many people as you can. But remember what Jesus said. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for everybody. Is that what he said? What did he say? One for another. See, it's difficult to love this many people. It's easy to love another. <laughs> that, was, that was ugly, wasn't it? It's easy to love another. And here's God's plan. If every believer, so let's say that I was the only believer in the world, and I reached Ethan, and took a year, my pacemaker, and I took a year and trained Ethan to win someone else. Trained him in the word of God, grounded him in the word of God. Took a year. Only one one, just Ethan. But then Ethan wins someone and begins training them. And I win another. You see how that works? Listen, if we would all do that, in 33 years, we'd reach 8 billion people. Which is difficult because there's only 6 billion. 33 years. 33 years. If we, How many of you want the Lord to return? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The way to accomplish that is for us to do our job of leading someone to the Lord and making them a disciple of Jesus Christ. God's plan works. We don't need internet. We don't need computers. We don't need the interwebs. We don't need any of that. They're useful tools but if, if the disciples had done what Jesus said to do, we never would have gotten here. Because in the lifetime of Jesus Christ, 33 years, in that period of time, it's interesting, we're called the body of Christ. And if the body of Christ did what Christ told them to do in his body, in his lifetime, we would have reached the entire globe. Now, God knew that wasn't going to happen. 
And it's interesting, there are more people alive today than have ever lived. There are more people alive on the planet today than if you dug up everyone that's ever lived and added them all up, that's less than the 6 billion people that are alive today. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? And so if we would begin working God's plan right now, within 30 years, we could reach every person on planet Earth. But we think the job is too big. It's not too big. You don't have to win everybody. You have to win one more. You see how God's plan is so wonderful in this interval, in this intervening church age. Then, of course, we have the seven years. That seven years, that is what Daniel's 70th week is. So we are in that intervening period. We are in that gap. Uh, uh, one writer, the same guy that did the uh, stuff on Mars that I was reading, he says that there are 24 of those gaps in the Bible. 24 of those gaps. And it's interesting that in Revelation chapter 5, you have the four and 20 elders that represent the church. So 24 of those gaps where you have the church in those gaps, there are 24 of those, and maybe we can track those down sometime. That'd be a good Bible study and say, hey, here's the church. Here's the church. How is the, how is the church found in the Old Testament? In the gaps. In the gaps, because it's a mystery that was hidden. They didn't know anything about it. We're in that interval. What began this interval was the triumphal entry. What ends it is the rapture of the church. What prompts the rapture of the church is the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. We just need to reach people. If we want Jesus Christ to come back, let's keep leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's do it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. What a wonderful time it is gathering around your word.